Welcome to an episode of Now You Know, a Beacon newspaper podcast highlighting the news and newsmakers of the West Volusia community. This episode is brought to you by Kemp Realty Group, your local real estate experts. If you're exploring buying or selling a residential or commercial property, especially in the downtown Deland area, they listen and connect buyers and sellers with great success. Visit their website, livelovedeland.com, or call Maureen Kemp directly at 386-801-4276. I am Beacon reporter Noah Hertz, and I'm here today with local historian and grant writer Sydney Johnston. Sydney's very familiar with the ins and outs of how to preserve a historical structure and why it's important. He's been involved with a number of local preservation efforts, including the ongoing effort to restore the J.W. Wright Building on Voris Avenue in downtown Deland, and he also served for a time on the city's Historic Preservation Board. Sydney, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Noah. It's a real pleasure and honor to be asked, and I look forward to our conversation. So we are having this conversation right now at the beginning of May. It is National Historic Preservation Month. So before we really get into things, tell me a little bit about you, where you come from, what your experience with this kind of stuff is, and that kind of thing. Thank you for that question. So I'm a fifth-generation native of the land with family members arriving here in 1877, 1883, 1921, 1949. It's on both sides of my uh, mother and father's family. And so I was um, born in the uh, now-demolished Fish Memorial Hospital. Oh, wow. And so my father had been born in the surviving Deland Memorial Hospital mm-hmm. on North Stone Street. So we have a long heritage in, uh, in the city that begins at birth and runs through the course of our lives. My uh, great-grandfather had helped found a printing company that still operates, the E.O. Painter Printing Company. And uh, Sidney Weller-Johnston, my great-grandfather, was a a general manager of that company from the mid-1880s until his retirement in the 1930s. Wow. So uh, many of the products that we printed were local Mm -hmm. for the city of Deland, the county of Volusia, for the property appraiser, for the clerk's office, as well as for Stetson University. So there's an interesting heritage at Stetson in that my great-grandfather was printing products as a general manager for the university for bulletins, letterheads, envelopes, stationery, all the parts and pieces that help a operation. And so... About 1905, we discovered in a ledger at Stetson University that instead of receiving cash payment, we were bartering the printed products for the education of my great aunt and my grandfather. Wow. So that's an interesting way to think about how culture has changed over time. Yeah. We hear little about bartering in America. Absolutely. Although I'm sure it happens in many ways, but nevertheless, it's a it's kind of an interesting, cool story yeah. to show culture. So it sounds like you have this kind of baked in interest in local history from the start. But is there is there a moment for you when you were growing up where you started to kind of become interested in 
your past generations and your ancestry here? So my father was an organizer of the West Volusia Historical Society in the 1970s, and he was the second president. Uh, Brinley Carter was the first president, and then Bill Dreggers was the third president. Mm -hmm. And so from the beginning, my dad, Sidney Dick Johnston, ensured that his children would understand the context and significance of history. So I went off to college at University of South Florida and in my graduate work in history and architectural preservation at University of Florida helped me understand that my gifts and talents mm -hmm. as part of a career in historic preservation made a real difference because what I learned was that because architectural preservation and historic preservation have a component of art in them as well as craft when you bring passion to the project it matters people see it they feel it they experience it yeah. and buildings convey through their architectural presence that passion that feeling that association that time mm -hmm. from our past that helps inform our next steps and that's wow. why, for me, historic buildings are an important part of our everyday culture. Mm -hmm. Now, I was, again, I was trained at University of Florida in the history department and in the architecture department. And what I learned in the architectural preservation program was that architects who are brought to a historic building are encouraged to think about what's called adaptive reuse mm. within a context of restoration or rehabilitation, which is different than more conventional architectural training where you're designing something from the ground up. Yeah. So part of what I recognized is that creative imagination is a keynote feature of architecture. Yeah. When it comes to historic preservation, there's a context within which the creative imagination applies mm -hmm. because you're respecting the resource and the changes that you make are guided by criterion that come down to the United States Department of the Interior National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And so those guidelines and criteria are part of the preservation Bible, if you will, oh, okay. of how the redevelopment of a historic property should proceed. One of the elements, too, of our conversation, we're about two, three months removed now from the city's not necessarily the cities, but the demolition of the Hotel Putnam right in downtown DeLand. And this is a 100-year-old building that had a lot of different lives, a lot of different owners over the years. And, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled about the Hotel Putnam, about what went wrong, what could have been done better. But one thing that kind of perked me up is you've been going to the DeLand City Commission meetings from when we're recording this now, the past month or so. 
and delivering bits of what you've been calling the the Hotel Putnam postmortems, right? And I am not going to uh, to relitigate or reread the entire thing here, but you you sent me the text of them because I wanted to read back through them. And there was this one line in the first one that it stuck out to me when I heard it the first time, and it sticks out to me again when I was reading it. I just want to read it real quick. You wrote, with the demolition of the Putnam Hotel. The land becomes less historic, and our historic preservation ordinance did little to protect a landmark building. So on my watch, on your watch, on our watch, the land is less historic because of the loss of that landmark building. When I heard that the first time, it kind of hit me as well, and it really got me to thinking, what makes a building historic? Is it just age, or are there more elements to it than just that? That's a great question, and and thank you for bringing up my... um series on the Hotel Putnam Demolition Postmortem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in my, uh, I just completed my uh, third iteration. I'm trying to keep all those within the public comment, three minute uh, comment period. Mm-hmm. And I haven't discussed that particular question publicly let, yet. I've um, danced around the edges and we'll move more deeply into that because it pertains to other buildings that are perceived to be historic that have been demolished, which are different than the Putnam Hotel. And and here's why. The National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 put into motion the various parts and pieces that include as managed through the United States Department of Interior, the National Historic Preservation Act Mm -hmm. and the National Register of Historic Places. And so in graduate school, I learned about the National Register of Historic, uh, the National Register of Historic Places and how to write those nominations and the process. I mean, we traveled to Tallahassee. We had um, Division of Historic Resources staff come visit us in grad school. And so, there was a real direct connection and, and training, uh, professional training, in how to develop these nominations. And because it's the federal government and because it's the National Park Service that really cares deeply about history and about preservation, the guidelines are both creative and imaginative become out because they come out of the administration, the Democratic administration, Lyndon Baines Johnson, mm-hmm. 1966. So there's that kind of progressive feel to them, mm-hmm. and they're very tightly construed. So the National Register essentially survives and thrives off of a three-legged stool, if you will, that relates to age, integrity, and significance. So properties to be listed in the National Register, like the Putnam Hotel was back in 1987, have to meet those three basic and sometimes challenging criteria. Mm -hmm. Age is pretty simple. It's 50 years or older, and that's a year that was selected at the time of the uh, 1966 federal legislation. And so it's a moving target. So this year, 2023, properties that were built in 1973 or earlier are eligible for consideration 
in the review for National Register listing. Okay. Properties built in 1974 and or later mm-hmm. have some what are called criterion considerations that could lead to their listing in the National Register. Um, in the event, and just briefly, those criterion considerations are um, there's about eight of them, and, and they include things like a figure of national significance or international significance, having an event at a particular place or property or park, which could lead to a federal designation. And it does not meet the 50-year criteria. I see. And I'm getting down the weeds real deep (laughs) all of a sudden. But so age is first, and it's generally pretty easy. Integrity can be a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. Because you can have a building. I remember this from from a, a National Register staff member, actually out of Washington D.C., many years ago, who made this observation: If you're able to document that that was Abraham Lincoln's cabin birthplace, and there's no doubt about it, we know the location is confirmed. We know the age of it, but when we look at it for integrity. That is, does it look like Abe Lincoln's cabin from the early 19th century? Ah. So when it was built as a log cabin, it had probably a gable roof. If it has a flat roof now, huh? it does not pass the test of integrity. Yeah. If you can't touch and see the, the logs and instead... They're stuccoed walls? Absolutely not. And so th- th- that's a really crude but effective way of thinking about integrity. But I can see people over the years, maybe an owner deciding, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this up a little bit, maybe modernize it a little in the process, but maybe they have the best of intentions of just trying to keep it in good shape. That could potentially interfere with Absolutely. its integrity in that way. You see that immediately. Wow. I appreciate that. That's exactly right. And so that's why historic preservation boards, Mm -hmm. beginning primarily in the largest of the historic cities, places like Charleston, Philadelphia, New York, early on understood exactly what you said, Mm -hmm. that if property owners, especially in commercial areas, are completely changing a facade and taking out original materials – Integrity is being lost. So the 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 third leg of the three-legged stool is significance. And in many ways, that can be the most difficult of the three-legged stool legs to justify. Significance relates to primarily its architecture and to what extent the architecture of that property has significance because of its context Mm -hmm. and because of what it looks like and those features that you document. Or it could be its history, the events, the persons. Abe Lincoln. That's right. Involved. (laughs) And and that would be at the national level, of course. But there's local significance. I mean, there's an old saying in history that um, all events are local. Some of them are nationally significant okay. because they occur in a place mm-hmm. and that place is local, but it can have national significance. And so 
What we've done well, very well in the land, I think, is to help identify specific places where events or people of significance, like James W. Wright, like Bert Fish, yeah. like Henry Ada Land, came together and on their own or in collaboration with others, developed law firms, developed real estate firms, developed commercial businesses that led to the building up and the growth of the city of the land. And so that addresses and gets us to significance in a way that helps reviewers in Tallahassee and in Washington, D.C., better understand the photographs that they're looking at and the text that's related to them of why this place has significance, whether it's local, state, or national. And one of the nice things that we did that that I focused on with um, Mark Shuttleworth and Mario Davis and the leadership of Greater Union Life Center was to discuss the immediacy of having the listing for the right building in hand, or if we should take some more time and think about, and and ultimately were successful in identifying the statewide significance associated with that building, okay. which is a it's a higher threshold mm-hmm. than than local significance. So. Um, I think part of your question was, why should we care? Yeah, definitely. So, some of that relates to, in the simplest terms, high school. Maybe even middle school. And it could be placed in a binary question. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you like to read about history or did you not like to read about history? Mm -hmm. And not everything leads from there. But that desire and that focus tells us about our own being, our soul, about whether we care about the past or not. Because some people don't. Some some people are, and I applaud them, only forward looking. And what happened in the past is done and gone. And anything that represents the past for some people is a barrier. Mm-hmm. It's out ahead of Yeah, it. it's outdated. It's in need of being modernized. And historic preservation through architects and engineers who are supportive of historic preservation Mm -hmm. have worked hard at the national, state, and local levels with chief building officials to find appropriate regulations and legislation that makes acceptable special considerations for historic buildings Mm -hmm. within the context of the code that regulates construction in a community. So uh, that was always a very interesting part. When I was in active practice, that was always a very interesting part 
of uh, conversations because it's not all the same in every community. And immediately it's um, it's clear upon meeting some city or county officials in, in other places, yeah. whether they're supportive or not mm-hmm. and how that affects the conversation and then the outcome of a project. I think I got a little overly philosophical there, but that's... <laughs> I think that's an important element of this, though, because because you're right, as as communities grow and communities change, it it becomes apparent sometimes when you spend time in a place and sometimes just driving right down Main Street, what the what the heart and soul of that community is and a forward looking, purely modern, purely new outlook is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is different than a place like driving through downtown to land and you see all these old facades. I think for for people who are less familiar, though, you gave some examples of some of the people who are historically important to the makeup of a place like the land. What are some of the buildings that have been recognized on the state level in this area, in West Fallujah? I guess not even necessarily just in the land. That's a great question at a... Uh 60,000 level viewpoint and um, <laughs> is is really important to consider because there are places like uh, the Frederick DeBerry house or mansion, yeah. the Stetson house or mansion, mm-hmm. and there's a number of other resources like that, like those that date from the late 19th century that helped set a standard in the 1980s for what's historic. And so what I learned in graduate school and then really experienced in the industry, in the profession, was that over time, what's historic changes, Mm -hmm. in part because of that moving date, that how 50 years is is a moving target predicated on the beginning of the next year. Those resources that were built in 1974 become eligible for survey toward National Register listing or local designation in um, 2024. And so if we go back into the 1980s, there are very few properties listed on the National Register Mm -hmm. in Volusia County. And I've named two of I think the most prominent that come to mind in West Volusia County. And part of what I also recognized is in reading those nominations, that was a template for how to do National Register level research then that did not qualify in the 1990s. And far more research and documentation and footnotes were required by the time we easily got into the 2000s. And so I remember working, this is getting a little bit off task, but I remember working in a uh, South Carolina colonial city that was part of a uh, Revolutionary War action. And the National Register District that we were asked to come back to that had been listed mm-hmm. in, 19, in 1966, a very early 
nomination that eventually led toward National Historic Landmark status. The, the type of documentation that we conducted in the, that would have been the mid-1990s, far surpassed the research that had been conducted on that same community in the 1960s. In part, well, in part because when you travel to St. Augustine, mm -hmm. you see the Castillo, you're yeah. immediately impacted and you immediately understand why that's a national monument. Absolutely. Why that's a national yeah. historic landmark. The same thing with Bach Tower. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In Lake Wales. So when you come to the land or Orange City, yeah. the impact isn't quite as direct. And I see it in your I see it in your face and your eyes. And so that's why, and rightfully so, the National Register staff in Washington, D.C. required more and more documentation in part to address significance. I see. And to make sure that the integrity was intact. And I know you're you're very familiar with all sides of this process. I know you've been involved. You were involved with the effort to get the James W. Wright building on the register. Are there other projects locally that you've been involved in with that process as well? That's a great question. And I want to, um, I'd like to pause and just give credit where credit is due because there were a number of um, persons who approached me about that project three years ago, almost four years ago now. Uh, there was, um, at Stetson then, there was Kevin Winchell and Savannah Jane Adkins, uh, Savannah Jane Griffin, and Saul Johnson and, and Andy Eisen. And so they, uh, and I was very grateful for the uh, contact. And then they put me in touch with an old friend, Mark Shuttleworth. Yeah. And that's when the magic really began. And I understand that they could use some help. And I realized, okay, I can set aside some Sometime on, you know, the weekends and after hours to uh, make this happen. And that's part of the reason it took so long. It was not, I was, I was no longer in the, in the consulting world and in the, in the professional world of preparing national register nominations. Mm -hmm. So it took nearly two years to complete, two and a half years to complete the entire wow. process. And so what I recognized in that process was how much I, absolutely enjoyed working in the African-American community Yeah, and also recognized that um, there were projects, especially in places like Jacksonville in um, Bartow and other cities and towns with um, pretty significant African-American culture and historic buildings yeah. that um, I deeply appreciated and hope someday to um, return to and uh, continue documenting. But for now, um, I'm working in the uh, what I'm understanding as the Wrights Corner Historic District and trying to rough out those boundaries and identify the significant properties that are 
in that neighborhood. And it's been a, uh, it's been an engaging process with many new insights and great relationships moving forward to help make that federal recognition a, uh, a reality as well. And I have no doubt that will be seven, several years off. Yeah. Several years off. Yeah. We've, we've talked a bit about the Wright building. We've kind of talked around it, but for people who aren't familiar, the James W. Wright building is this, this old building just a couple of blocks from the, the main heart of downtown Deland, Woodland Boulevard, that was this hub of a, of commercial activity for entrepreneurs, specifically in the black community, right? Uh, I don't know if, can we say in Deland or were they just near Deland? What was their relationship like to Deland? I feel like to, to understand properly the importance of this project, it's good to know some of that, you know? Well, again, I think I'll start with <laughs> where I kind of left off before that yeah. the building has statewide significance. Absolutely. Yeah. So in my career, there might have been 15 or 20 national register projects that carried statewide significance, like Stetson University, like Bethune-Cookman College, now University, and a few others. And so that speaks volumes, that the Wright Building has that statewide significance. So James W. Wright comes, is, is born in 1875 into a family of freed persons from the uh, Alachua County, Putnam County area, arrives here in the mid-1890s. And part of what I pointed out in the National Register nomination, in fact, emphasized, was that instead of him participating in what's known as the first great great migration of African-Americans out of the South into the Northeast, And those bracket dates are roughly 1916 through 1940. So instead of James Wright, James W. Wright, participating in the Great Migration, which he very well could have done, he moved from west to land where his home, Citrus Grove, packing house, and farm was located to make investments in the land's largest African-American community. And adjacent to his church, Greater Union First Baptist Church. And so that investment, that willingness to put dollars in the ground to cultivate relationships and commercial enterprises near the height of the Jim Crow era in the land in Florida, in the South, speaks volumes about his entrepreneurship, about his character. And it wasn't that he just did that. He persisted and he was successful. And so that's a great story to tell. Mm -hmm. And that's in part why the neighborhood is so significant historically. Yeah. And I can see where, especially like you said, on the state level, that absolutely makes sense because it's part of this trend, both historically and now in the contemporary, it's part of this missing history of black history in Florida that so often gets missed out on. Is that the kind of stuff that was included in the nomination for the National Register? Was it newspaper clippings? Was it 
documentation from historians and that kind of thing? Thank you for that question. Um, absolutely. It cover, the, the bibliography and, and the footnotes reveal a, a broad swath of research all the way from the primary resources such as um, legal instruments from the courthouse, yeah. um, deeds, mortgages, um, litigation in which he was suing persons who he loaned money to, extended mortgages to, who um, failed to pay him. Oh, wow. And so I spent a good bit of time in the courthouse trying to document him through the lens of the law, the lens of real estate. And in one of the, uh, in a couple of the miscellaneous books, I mean, and that's, that's actually the, the title of the books back then, miscellaneous books, which mean exactly that. And so there were several recorded instruments where James W. Wright was buying commercial equipment from suppliers in Chicago to outfit his stores. Initially, he had a confectionery store, a grocery store, I'm not sure I remember what the other store was. A cafe. Confectionery, grocery, and cafe. And so he was purchasing high-grade, top-shelf commercial equipment mm-hmm. to operate these businesses. Yeah. Wright also hired leading-edge white architect and builder. To, to design and construct his building and use the professional services of white attorneys for all of his legal needs. And so it was immediately clear that he was well-connected yeah, in the community. And so to answer your question about whether it's in the land or not in the land or somewhere else or neighborhood, as far as he concerned, he was into land. Absolutely. Absolutely into land. And it's it's interesting you ask that because if, if we go back about 10 years, he completed the building about August of 1920. If we go back about 10 years, there are reports in the newspaper, which we have to take with a grain of salt and have to corroborate, but reports in the newspaper, the Deland Daily News, of anxiety by whites and probably racist whites about the rise of the Yemisee neighborhood becoming so powerful and politically involved. And again, this is this is in the middle of Jim Crow. This is about 19... 19- 10 or 1912. Wow. And there's a call in the newspaper, in just one newspaper, I haven't been able to corroborate it yet, for the residents of Yemisee, the the African-American citizens of Yemisee, to form their own town. Hmm. So they could have their own town and not be part of the land. Wow. Now, that's a story not often told. Yeah. And there aren't, 
I think I've only found two separate reports, essentially the same story, in the two different Glenn newspapers of the time. But that speaks volumes, too, about the political savviness, the energy of African Americans in growing their community, if the newspaper reports are correct, during that period of time in which Jim Wright, James W. Wright steps to really energize the uh, commercial center of the uh, of the community. So hearing that, I think the the what, the age, the integrity and the significance of this structure are pretty clear. And same with some of the other ones you mentioned, the DeBerry Hall, the Stetson Stetson Mansion. Some of the 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 age, the integrity and the significance of these are obvious. What do you do next then? How do you go about preserving a building? So that that story, like the story of James Wright, is around for generations to continue to learn about it, and that history is not lost. That's a that's a great question to ask, and there's there's different answers for different property owners. In the case of the Wright Building, persons deeply invested in it through Greater Union. Baptist Church and Greater Union Life Center and, and the great work that, that Mark Shuttleworth has done has been guided by, and I've referenced it once or twice before, the uh, U.S. Department of the Interior guidelines for, re- for rehabilitation. They very closely followed those guidelines each step of the way. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one example, and I'll set that aside because we, we could we could spend the rest of the hour talking about <laughs> that with the parts and pieces yeah. that have been done so uh, so with such excellence. And uh, I, I'm going to put out a a shout to Mark because uh, when I assisted him with a uh, $500,000 grant to the Florida Department of State, um, one of the commissioners clarified how excellent of a job. Greater Union Life Center had done in preparing the proposal and having all the parts and pieces with a timeline and the budget items to restore the building. And so that takes great effort and energy from the architect, the contractor, and then the the general manager type work that Mark's been doing. And that's before you even start work. That's high praise. That's at a state level. Absolutely. Um, So... For those, I have several theories of Florida history, one of which is <laughs> nobody's actually from Florida. Yeah. If you go back far enough, I'm not from Florida, mm-hmm. from Mississippi, from Connecticut, from uh, New York City mm-hmm. with different family members, different time, many decades ago. Yeah. And so oftentimes... I'll see folks from other places come to Florida and do what I call impose their values on everyone else and want to have things their way and change things so it suits their purposes. So historic preservation is not necessarily designed to stop that. Instead, it's designed to engage in a community conversation through criteria and regulations of what's allowable and what's not. And so that gets us deeper into the Department 
the interior standards for rehabilitation, which which essentially read pretty clearly. You you repair rather than you rather than replace. Mm-hmm. And so the wholesale replacing of a system on a building, whether it's um, windows, doors, mm-hmm. especially on the exterior, is a not recommended approach. That's the technical language from the Department of Interior. Put more um, aggressively, it's thou shalt not. <laughs> but it's not interpreted that way. But yeah. that's, that's the intention. And so a lot of that depends on how chief building officials mm-hmm. in a community view in concert with the Historic Preservation Board what's allowable and what's not. Yeah. What constitutes repair rather than replacement and not? Because oftentimes, again, I, I go back to the 1960s during that progressive era, the the the, the, the yeah to the Great Society, of absolutely the Johnson yeah. administration. That's the period of um, both great unrest and, in many ways, great progress. Mm-hmm. Within that national register structure where there is latitude. And that's where things get a little murky. So not oftentimes not recommended is just, in my estimation, just dismissed by some people. Yeah. Because it doesn't say thou shalt not. And I can see where a lot of that is up, like you said, left to the interpretation of a chief building official who might make an incredibly... It might not even seem like it, but an incredibly crucial decision about what is important to the collective story of a community. I learned in Sunday school as a kid that um, the windows are the eye into the soul. In many ways, the is it, windows of a... I'm sorry? Is it the eye is the, the window? I'm sorry, that's right. I got that reversed. <laughs> the eyes are the window into the soul. Yeah. And so in many ways, the windows of a building yeah. are its eyes. And we understand the soul of the building better because of the windows. And so there's some really simple ways to think about original windows rather than replacement windows. Mm-hmm. So original windows on historic buildings, and, and, and I'm talking about windows that are primarily pre-World War II, have what's called a depth of reveal. Where you have a this, – this little window is kind of an example of it where – the window's not flush the wall, it's set back. There's a okay. depth of reveal. Yeah. And so, and so on some historic buildings, um, one great example on the Stetson campus, well, there's several on Stetson campus, but one of my favorites is the old Perkins house in the 100, I think it's 142 uh, East Michigan Avenue. It has a has a wonderful depth of reveal, that um, impression of... Um, receding and projecting surfaces. Oh, that's so interesting. not just flat. Yeah. And that, that's, been, that's been part of the issue with the mid-century modern movement where, you know, you got glass and steel buildings where everything's just, just one flat surface. It looks like a, a child drawing a square on a piece of paper <laughs> and calling it a house. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I'm, I want to go back to a point you made a minute ago where you, you referenced that nobody's originally from Florida. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, too, especially to the, the architecture and the historic buildings in this area. Because barring 
the Native American populations who were here long before people like you and I arrived and our ancestors arrived. I think what's interesting about this area is that a lot of the buildings that are historic, that have been deemed historic, do represent these titans of industry, these titans of the area, like Frederick DeBerry, like Henry DeLand, and even like James Wright. And it's interesting that a lot of those buildings then are these big either mansions or these big business buildings. Like, I think uh, Florida seems to be fairly, I guess, not unique in that way to me, but Florida definitely seems to have a really interesting history in that way with its buildings. I appreciate your pointing that out. Part of that relates to what you reflected back to me. Mm -hmm. That, and, and let me go to a presentation I gave years ago on Florida's historic lighthouses. Oh, cool. Some of those earliest lighthouses, and this would be from the 1820s and 1830s when Florida was a territory, mm -hmm. were not built by Floridians in part because there weren't many Floridians. There, there, were, there were some. There were yeah. certainly African-American Floridians. There were some white, a uh, few white planters who had uh, transitioned from the British and Spanish colonial period and, and remained in the early territorial period. But there weren't many builders, and there cer certainly weren't many builders of lighthouses. And so those persons who built most of the earliest lighthouses, and there might have been uh, about 12 or 15 of those in wow. the period from 1820 through about just before statehood in the 1840s, mm -hmm. were built by New Englanders. And so they had expert design and material concepts in New England with its rocky shores that largely failed in Florida. <laughs> Where everything is just sand, just sand all the way down. <laughs> and so the reports of lighthouses toppling into the sea. Wow. Are almost boundless, almost every one of them. And one of the few that I documented, um, and that was an effort with... Uh, a um, top-shelf historic preservation architect, uh, Kenneth Smith out of Jacksonville, who's now retired, mm -hmm. was at uh, Amelia Island from um, from the nineteen from the eighteen thirties. Yeah, and because it was built on a bluff high above, on a rocky bluff high above the ocean, it's one of the very few oldest Florida lighthouses to survive. So. What does that mean for the land? By analogy, we have people like the Conrads and the Bonds. Yeah. And so my family is part of the Conrad heritage moving into the area in the 1870s, some of them in the 1880s. And they brought particular styles of architecture, particular ways of lumbering, cutting wood, cutting out the forests that they had perfected in upstate New York and Michigan mm -hmm. and brought those those systems and skills here. Mm -hmm. And then the Bonds, they perfected their own method of cutting lumber and dressing it for homes and, and buildings. And they also developed what we know, and you touched on earlier, the sandline bricks, mm -hmm. a technology that dates into the 1880s in Germany and was brought to this this country with um, many, many sandline brick factories in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest and just a few of them in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so that material culture matters. Yeah. 
because hard fire ray, uh, sorry, hard fired, hard fired red clay brick mm -hmm. that runs through a kiln is a different product than a white sand brick that runs through steam generated uh, boiler type yeah. of a system. They're, they're very different products that age differently and need different types of preservation treatment mm -hmm. if those buildings are to survive. So those persons from upstate New York, from Ohio, from Michigan who came here and brought those different skills mean that we have buildings that are a little unusual mm -hmm. on the landscape because of those values and systems that they brought that we're still trying to understand yeah. and trying to document. Because, see, some of the sand line bricks and brick buildings in DeLand have been, um, they've been painted, mm -hmm. and that's a system to help the sand from eroding and deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Some of them have been sprayed with a, a gunite system, which is a uh, essentially a cement spray. And then others have been stuccoed over. And so those buildings have the question to be asked, to what extent have they lost their integrity? Yeah. That's a question. That's only a question to, answer, to ask for now mm -hmm. and try to answer later. So, when the historic district was created in 1986 and 80, it was listed in 1987 downtown DeLand, mm -hmm. there were far fewer buildings that had been altered at that point than now. Mm -hmm. And so it's that alteration and demolition process that I've just started to address in my post-mortem mm -hmm. series that results in my conversation that you began with about the land has become a little bit less historic. Yeah. And the closing clause to that is to visitors mm -hmm. who come to see our buildings. If the building's gone, yeah. there's no age, there's no integrity, there's no significance. Mm -hmm. And you're losing your historic district bit by bit. And that's that's important, and it's it's also subjectively important to different people. Now, I know in coordination with this National Historic Preservation Month, the city of Deland has launched a web platform on their website. It's a map of the some of the historic buildings in town, and it allows you to kind of you know you can see the Deland House Museum, and you can see all these other historic areas in Deland. And I know other cities have similar. I know Deberry has specific areas you can go to see their historic buildings. Too. And for for people who get to drive around and see these success stories and see the the buildings that have been saved, that have whether it was through grants or whether it was through concerted effort from the city or something like that, what are some of those challenges then that success stories had to endure to get preserved? So success in the land for historic preservation has meant many things to many people. Yeah. Um, and so there are homes that have hardly changed mm -hmm. in the 30 years or so that gender and I have lived in the same neighborhood and people have carried on their lives and enjoyed the, um, the historic character of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. 
And within that context, and I learned this, I think, first in, in one of the upscale neighborhoods of it's either St. Petersburg or Jacksonville, mm-hmm. that when there's enough wealth and enough caring about history, mm-hmm. you may not need historic preservation ordinance. That was the lesson. Those were some of the lessons I learned, and not just from experience, but from talking with historic preservation planners mm-hmm. from that time 20, 25 years ago. Whether it's the same now, I don't know because there's yeah. change over time. Absolutely. But in Deland, we have collections of Mediterranean Revival, Colonial Revival, Bungalow, Frame Vernacular. Beautiful homes that are a hundred, some of them 120 years old that people appreciate because of the character. So character doesn't always preserve neighborhoods. And I think part of my concern has always focused on if we become so popular and Folks want to move here, and especially the developers, and they see opportunities. Mm-hmm. They'll come in buy a block or half a block of historic houses, mm-hmm. demolish those, and rebuild with modern homes that look historic. That's one of the what I think of as threats mm-hmm. to a place like the land. How likely is it? I don't know. And I know uh, I know that's one of the cardinal sins of historic preservation ordinances generally, right? right? That false historic feeling of building something that looks historic, but there's nothing underneath the surface. That's exactly right. And so it's there's there's seven uh, what are those? The seven qualifiers of historic preservation that have to do with Location, association, feeling, Mm -hmm. those softer, those softer sides of historic preservation where you feel the history as you walk through is on the other side of economic development. Mm -hmm. And what Historic preservation through the National Trust, through the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation, try to do well is to marry economic development with historic preservation. And that's through that adaptive reuse that you mentioned earlier, right? That's exactly right. And Mm -hmm. there's tax credits, there's grants available to help um, support the development of those, um, redevelopment of those properties through... um, Mm -hmm through various mechanisms. So um, finding that balance between um, the softer side that deals with association and feeling Mm -hmm. and the harder side with the dollars and the economic development is the uh, really the dynamic tension that helps make a uh, historic preservation program successful. Yeah, I imagine even more than finding the the right historic shutters from the right year and making sure that the windows are made the exact same way and look the exact same, you got to get dollars and cents behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it is all about the dollars because um, 
that's going to drive reinvestment. Mm -hmm. I learned a couple of things in graduate school that were uh, stories that were reinforced in my career. One was oftentimes a community has to lose a landmark mm -hmm. before they get interested in preserving their history. So in some ways, we're in our second generation of that or maybe our third generation with a demolition of the Putnam Hotel recently. The other thing I learned was about those dollars, that it's historic preservation serves as a multiplier for economic development because it's going to generally cost more for adaptive reuse or restoration yeah. than to build new. But when you're done, you have a much better product. Yeah. Again, going to the softer side of things, about the feeling, the association, wow, this is really historic and this cool. Yeah. So those are almost the, the – that part is almost the ineffable. Mm -hmm. You got to put money in to get the money out. Yeah. Wow. For people who who are listening to this and they've got to the end of this and they're thinking they're they're so energized now about buildings that they maybe didn't care as much about before, maybe did and now are extra fired up about, how do people in the community go about getting involved in preservation efforts or even just tapping more into the history of their community? How do people go about that? That's a great question. And so um first off, don't come find me. <laughs> Let's not start there. Let's go see um, Wayne Carter at uh, Main Street Deland Association. Talk to him about your interest. Let him help guide your thinking and conversation about investments. Mm -hmm. Go visit the West Volusia Historical Society. Mm -hmm. the They're great. There who um, deeply value history and preservation and are invested heavily in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And with much great thanks to the city of the land for uh, long supporting the, uh, the society. Mm -hmm. Talk to your neighbors who live in historic places. See what they think. Yeah. So the simple act of walking out your door and walking along sidewalks in historic place means that you have an opportunity for these incidental conversations yeah. that can lead to your investment in a neighborhood. Yeah. Finding a home that means everything to you, whether it's for rental income or whether it's your private home. And if you're out walking around, you might even get to walk your dog or pet someone else's dog too. That's it. That's it. You know, every dog has its day. And so <laughs> that's the trick to it. That's the trick to historic preservation. <laughs> well, look, Cindy, I, I can't thank you enough for talking about this, especially like you said, there's, I feel like it's a really pertinent time to be talking about this kind of thing. I think this and maybe this is just the the bubble that I'm in it, with the news here, but I think this National Historic Preservation Month, I think a lot more people are invested in making sure that their community stays looking historic with as much growth as happening with, like you said, the loss of a building like the Hotel Putnam. I think a lot of people are getting invested in that character that they didn't even know they were invested in before until it started to change. And 
then they realized that that's something they really like. So I, I really can't thank you enough for for sharing this now at a time when I think people might be looking for ways to get involved and to figure this stuff out themselves. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate that. And, and let me put in a plug for a couple of organizations. I want to I want to pause to thank the, the city of Deland for issuing its proclamation for National Historic Preservation Month. That was this uh, past Monday. I think that's a, a keynote feature of revitalizing, reigniting interest in historic preservation mm-hmm. coming from the leadership. Yeah. In the middle of July in Ocala, the Preservation on Main Street annual conference will meet that involves the Main Street program. That's a statewide and national program. Pair up with the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation, and that's in Ocala. And so it's right up the road, and there'll be a group of presenters there that help educate all of us about how to invest in historic properties. Um, You know, you asked about another tool. Let me put in a plug for uh, Old House Journal, that there's great tips in um, that journal and other related magazines and journals about finding a historic place and what's involved, because there's always going to be a surprise. And then finally, in uh, November, the uh, National Trust for for Historic Preservation has its annual meeting, and that's in Washington, D.C. And again, those are those are excellent conferences to meet like-minded people or to go out on a limb if you don't know anything about history or don't like history, just to go meet folks to see what this is, what all this chatter is about. Yeah. Because for some folks, historic preservation is just chatter yeah. until you get invested in it. Mm-hmm. Until you, yeah, until you find that building in your neighborhood that you really, really care about. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, like I said, thank you, Sydney, and I want to thank anybody listening who uh, gets invested and goes out and really becomes a part of their community. Thanks again to our sponsor, Kemp Realty Group, your local real estate experts. If you're exploring buying or selling a residential or commercial property, especially in the downtown Deland area, they listen and connect buyers and sellers with great success. Visit their website, livelovedeland.com, or call Maureen Kemp directly at 386-801-4276. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jeff Shepard for our Now You Know music. Find more podcasts and all the local news you need at www.beacononlinenews.com. The Beacon, here for you.